interesting. Well, let's do it. <laughs> All righty. So, um, so Rick, uh, do you have any topics you'd like to discuss today before we jump into the dialogue? <laughs> no, let's dive right in. Okay, <laughs> I have something. Then I'm preamble already. So go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed this week that's been uh, really beneficial for my practice. So I recently read um, the book by Bhante Vimala Ramsey about uh, tranquil wisdom insight meditation, and this can be a whole other talk. That book. So I'm just going to focus on one small part where. He talks about how any tension or stress that one notices, like in one's consciousness, is a form of craving. You know, that's a form of, you know, either desire or aversion. And aversion is also a form of desire, right? And um, and so I've started noticing that. And when I notice any tightness or tension, you know, in my perception, like I, I, I'm learning to disengage from the thoughts about that and just notice that tightness um, as dukkha, you know. And then I look for another place in my awareness that is more expansive and calm and happy or is expansive, calm and happy. And, and that's been really powerful, like as far as practice off the cushion goes in particular. Um, because it takes the dukkha out of the game of thought, which a lot of this dialogue by Plato we're about to discuss is about, and brings it into the physiological realm. And it's way easier, I find, to call a spade a spade when you start to see dukkha as physiological as opposed to merely, you know, a mental thing. Because sometimes, like, I would debate with myself, is this really an unwholesome thought or, you know, is this like something I should actually, you know, be concerned about? You know, let's say like I'm worried about paying the bills or something. Is it unwholesome to be worried about paying my my uh, electric bill? You know, saying thinking to myself, oh, I have to pay that, you know, or not. And you can argue with yourself about it. And the fact is paying the bill is is pretty wholesome actually you know but once you start thinking and you develop like some kind of a mental and then emotional attitude towards it of say worry or aversion or whatever that's where dukkha is created so if you just notice the tension that comes up when you start thinking about that then immediately it becomes clear what it is and you can throw it out and so i'm finding my nervous system actually to be better a better Dhamma tool for me than my mind, <laughs> which has been a pretty interesting uh, insight. So you mean your system has become less nervous? There you go. <laughs> it's just a system now. <laughs> yeah, just a system. <laughs> not, not nearly system. as nervous. <laughs> yeah, it's funny why they call it a nervous system, right? You know, like why that particular word? Um, but yeah, it's been a big improvement in terms of my ability to discern between dukkha and non-dukkha. You know, joy, bliss, expansion, expansive awareness, 
et cetera. Yeah, I like your example of the, like, of let's say like having to pay a bill or having like, but I, I see those thoughts as, the first one is just a reminder, like a little alarm, like a notification, like a mental notification. At that point, after it's after it's been brought to the attention once, then I think it has the potential for uh, to move into dukkha, as you said, because of the attachment to emotion or the 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 constant recycling of the same thought, you know, or the struggle against it, all of that. But the the notifications, I I I think they're they're helpful actually, and I don't see them as, I mean, they're necessary. They're necessary because of the kind of, um, you know, post postmodern society that we live in. They're constantly we constantly have to be notified of X Y Z variables so that we can maintain our as best we can our our ship. Um, on the on the waters of uh, of this of this culture, but uh, but yeah, after that, yeah, it's uh, it's not helpful any longer. Um, and I guess generally in my in my day to day, I'll just kind of almost be grat like have a gratitude toward. Okay, thanks for the notification, and then I'll take care of that at X amount X date. And then I can I'd let the thought go. I let the notification go. And if it returns, I go, oh, remember, I have the date <laughs> back out again. <laughs> um, there. So, yeah, <laughs> there we go. That's great. Yeah, it reminds me of a podcast I just listened to over the weekend. It's a conversation between Delson Armstrong and Daniel Ingram. I've listened to it before. Like a year ago, on Guru was, Viking. Uh, yeah, I've I've uh, I've watched that one as well. Is that the one where they? There was an interesting question about. Um, I think, I think Steve asked um, them, you know, could someone who's steeped in the Dharma and on like X Y Z path, have sociopathic tendencies? And Ingram was like, absolutely. We see it all the time. And Delson was like, nuh-uh. <laughs> yeah. That's the shorthand uh, version. Was, I know there was more. It was a lot friendlier than that. But that that's, I remember that uh, kind of like point of friction between the two on that. Was that the same talk? That was the same talk. Okay. And that's a, that's a whole other conversation. But Absolutely. Yeah. The, yeah. I'm the, just, the, just, trying the, to, yeah. just trying to orient which one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I brought it up is there's an interesting part of the conversation also this this actually ties into that topic too okay of like um would in our hot you know how would narhat experience putting their hand on the stove right and assuming the stove is burning right sure, sure. or or some other you know physiological pain right like and there's actually a part in the suttas according to the guys on the call that uh, when the Buddha is near the end of his life, he gets some kind of disease in his in his abdomen, in his bowels, and he said, and he complain. He actually kind of complains about the pain. Maybe not the way we would normally complain today, but he says something along the lines of, you know, this suffering, is, or this maybe not the suffering, this pain is tremendous. You know, so, you know, 
um, along those lines. And the uh, conclusion they came to is that, you know, an R hot an enlightened one, for those that don't know the term, is, um, you know, subject to the same physiological system as any of us. So, you know, the Buddha felt the really bad abdomen pain, you know, however, um, they would probably, you know, in some sense, feel less pain because they don't identify with it and attach to it. And that they're just experiencing pain without all the additional of, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening to me. Right. Oh my God, there's this no, is so terrible. Oh my God, this is going to happen forever. You know, and there's no um, overlay. There's no overlay of suffering on top of the physical suffering. There's no mental anguish that ties in the way we would. Like if we suddenly get a tightness in our chest rather than just experiencing it and recognizing, oh, perhaps it's time to go to the hospital. There would be the, uh oh, what does this mean? Uh-oh, and then all the scenarios play out, whereas an Ar- Arhant wouldn't. They would just, they would take the necessary action, but without all this uh, negative dukkha strings atta- that they quickly attach and go, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for me? What will happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And And another way that it's talked about is, you know, all things <laughs> have a Nietzsche, right? So... You know, Don Murado, you know, has talked before about how his teacher, John Poe, said that a sotopon is a sotopon some of the time. You know, an arhat is an arhat some of the time. And, you know, they're not always 100% of the time exemplifying sotopon, arhat. Right, because then that goes back to the idea of perfection. And perfection is, is literally just a concept. Yep. No, it's a concept. And how can one, especially one who who hasn't, um, let's say, um, had these experiences, how could how could they precisely know anyway? You know, so, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, Pietro, great to have you on. How are you doing, guys? Hello. Good. How are you? Hi. Oh, fine. Thank you. Great. Uh, uh, we were are just we dis- okay. What was that? Are we already on a topic? Um, kind of. We're doing the intro topics, just whatever anyone wants to bring up. So right now we're discussing um, pain and our hotship and that type of thing. And our big topic for the day is going to be the dialogue Euphifro by Plato. So, oh, cool. um, yeah, that's where we're at. So, <laughs> anywho, and anything you want to bring up too, uh, Pietro, feel free. So, after we wrap up this pain topic, um, and I, yeah. But uh, anywho, um, so what were you saying, Rick? Not, not sure. <laughs> Oh, oh, I remember. No, no, I I found the I found the train. I got back on the train. Um, Just just how. And again, this is like a little tangent, but how the very uh, the very concept of enlightened or arhant or whatever is, again, very conceptual and different traditions have their ideas of it. Different people have their ideas of what that must be. 
and there seems to be kind of a consensus of they they I think people associate it with some sort of perfection, perfection of no suffering, the perfection of transcendence of suffering. But there could be like a, like an either an exaggeration of that, you know, based throughout time, over time, throughout the traditions, or maybe it's just a matter of um, uh, maybe wishful thinking. Like, of course, I want my teacher to be perfect. <laughs> One of the perfect ones. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. But well, just having a physical form necessarily means some sort of physical suffering. You know, it's just automatic. It's just automatic. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's really easy to, to just investigate that right away. So if an arhat gets uh, a rock falls on his head, and he gets brain damage, or he gets Alzheimer's, or she, by the way, it could be a she, um, you know, they're probably not going to be in our hot anymore, you know, especially if they have Alzheimer's, right? Um, so <laughs> I forgot how to be enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> I completely, it blew, I blew my mind. It blew my, it blew out of my mind. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways you know, that might not even involve them stepping off the path, but just some natural thing happens to them and they're no longer in Arhat, all right? Including death. <laughs> you know, when you die, where's the Arhat? Well, they're gone. <laughs> and we don't have any immortal Arhats <laughs> yet. You know, the tech isn't quite quite ready for that yet. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so even that, you know, is an impermanent, state which was actually we had a we had a conversation about that in the song of us on friday with one student um you know kind of declaring that this was a permanent you know in, you know undefeatable state and uh Domerato basically saying no <laughs> yeah anicha um, anicha uh, absolutely Anicha. that that's back to wishful thinking it's back to wanting to think there's a there's a state beyond beyond suffering beyond beyond change but you know one you know then you're starting to push against the noble truths you know and say no it doesn't it doesn't go against the 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 four big tenets right it's ever it's it there is impermanence even our hot ship is impermanent absolutely yeah even maybe within the same lifetime absolutely yeah mm -hmm. everyone's in our hot until they talk to their um their sister yeah, <laughs> everyone's in our hot until they they talk to their children. Yeah, the good old Ram Das quote: "You think you're enlightened? Go visit your family. Go visit your family, and you'll find out real quick who's enlightened." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the ultimate test. That's funny. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but I understand. I mean, for a lot of people, it feels like you know their motivation to practice is to reach this this um exalted state and you know that that's fantastic but at the same time they're kind of setting themselves up for uh for some disappointment you know they are and i also want to point out like one of the great things that ram das <laughs> is saying you know in that quote and rick's version about the sister specifically <laughs> <laughs> my sister yeah yeah <laughs> um is 
it implies that one should test, you know, themselves. One should test one's one's own attainment. Maybe not that they should, but that it can be beneficial. Right. I think I think I think they'll be tested either way. Like life, yeah. life is its own life test. I don't test. think you need I don't think you need to go out and seek it out at all. I don't think you need to I agree. You know, it's it's not like you're, you know, let's say a highly trained martial artist and you're gonna go out to the the east side and you know with some hundred dollar bills strapped to your shoulders to see see how good you are you don't need to you know just continue to live and you know the slings and arrows will find you either way there's no need to seek it out you know it's up and down the wave continues yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i i totally agree whether you like it or not life is going to test you it'll find you It'll, it'll find you it'll you know circumstances will find you um, the wonderful thing about the practice is you will be ready for e- any moment, you know, so. There was actually another great story. Um, Don Morado tells this one about there was a monk in uh, one of the monasteries he's affiliated, he was affiliated with um, who did like a three-year silent retreat, you know, and he was totally blissed out for much of that time. And at the end of the retreat, he went in a car. You know, he had to go on a car ride. And as soon as he, they started driving, <laughs> the dukkha came back. And he was not really mentally prepared for the car ride. And that raises the question, you know, <clears throat> what was the purpose of the three years <laughs> if all it takes is a simple car ride to destabilize your little bliss that you have, right? Or mucho bliss, perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think there's benefits to both on the cushion practice and off the cushion practice. And if one part of that equation is seriously neglected, um, you know, there's <laughs> uh, danger for for dukkha. Right. It's sort of like the 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 vegan or the vegetarian that's super strict and adheres to, you know, only certain types of foods, you know, uber healthy. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's a plot, you know, that's laudable. However, if they find themselves in circumstances where that food that highly, you know, that very specific food isn't available, how is their system going to react when, you know, they get a little grease and fat and salt in there. You know, it's going to be, it's going to re- rebel. It's going to reject it. It's going to um, experience uh, a lot of a lot of physical suffering as a result because they they lost that conditioning in a way. You know, they they're existing on the pure cosmic, you know, gluten free universe juice, <laughs> but they've forgotten that you know the majority of the world isn't eating that stuff. You know, and so it's my sort of more more gross version uh, of of that of what you're talking about with, you know, jumping from retreat to retreat uh, without ever seeing how it's going to meet the road just by, you know, uh, living in the dusty world the way we do, you know. For sure. There is actually a word for this. It's called hormesis. And um, what hormesis is, is basically the process by which, you know, many biological organisms react to stress, Mm -hmm. where first the stress comes in and they benefit 
from a certain amount of stress. And then once the stress is too much, they start losing instead, and they actually do not benefit. So there's actually like a hormetic zone. I can um, show you guys here this little chart. Um, so this is like a really simple way of looking at it, where when you have some stress, you're actually strengthening, and there's like a maximal zone mm -hmm. after which your your benefits begin to decline and then you begin to weaken. So here's another chart that shows the same where you have your maximum response here and then you have your threshold and then you have your 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 loss of capacity. So um, so we all ideally want to be somewhere here um, if we want to grow in whatever area like weightlifting is like a really popular example, right? Where um, you want to, you're not going to gain strength if you don't um, add a certain amount of stress. However, if you add too much, you can become injured and then your weightlifting endeavor is over. Um, and that applies to anything, basically. So stress can be helpful right. for the system. It can. In certain doses. Absolutely. But of course, we can't always dictate how much is coming into the system. We, we have very yep. little control over that. And so it's it's helpful, I think, just to, um, you know, again, to continue to investigate regardless of what's incoming uh, in, into the system. Yeah. And hopefully yeah, it'll so be enough when you're really tested, you know, death of a loved one, loss of a limb, you know, fortunes are shattered, lost, life savings gone you know, uh, civil, uh, uh, you know, unrest, upheaval, you know, major issues, uh, you know, you'll be at a point where you're still fairly peaceful, despite the fact that, you know, <laughs> things are churning at a rate un unbeknownst to you prior. You know? Yeah, and that's why the Dhamma is so valuable, is because it's like a meta skill. It's like a skill about skills, right? You know, where you're not only learning how to react to one situation, you're learning to react to all of your life, you know, any stressor in your life. And mm -hmm. that makes you more resilient, you know, over time. That's right, Wu Wei, don't resist the water. It's much more powerful <laughs> than you. Learn, learn to float, learn to dive, learn to move with the currents, because it's gonna take you where it wants. <laughs> <laughs> You are just along for the ride, folks. You are just along for the ride. The more you relax, the better. Absolutely. Anywho, we've been going on for around 40 minutes now. So, Pietro, do you have anything? Um, or shall we just go into the dialogue? I think we can get into the dialogue. I really appreciate this first part of the call. Awesome. All right. Well, Thank you, Rick, for closing us out on that one. Sure. <laughs> Let's uh, start the dialogue here. Um, all right. So this is the Euthyphro by Plato. So the way we're going to do this is this is actually kind of long. So this could even be two calls. It's about 16 pages, although it's in script format. So, you know, it's not like a full 16 pages, really. But um, so I'm going to introduce it and do kind of an overview. And then when this is finished, uh, well, we can do some key lessons. And also, 
um, Rick and I are going to do like a little, um, shall we say, like like uh, play reading. So Rick can take on the role of Fifro. I can take on the role of Socrates. Unless you'd rather change that, Rick, I'm fine. I'm good. Way. I'm good with Fifro. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. And um, yeah, so uh, just a little overview. So this dialogue is one of the most famous platonic dialogues and it gets at the crux of many of Plato's ideas. I think I, we could actually even do a full series on Plato because there are so many great dialogues, but the basic gist of it is Socrates, who is the teacher of Plato, who may or may not have been a real person, but he never wrote anything down himself. Um, he had this, uh, this uh, habit or pastime liking to go to the Agora, which is like the central marketplace, and just kind of interrogate people about their lives. You know, why are you buying this? Why are you doing that? Why are you what here? A, what a legend. And, yeah. <laughs> what, a, what an effing legend, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> imagine, imagine going to your, to your nearest mall and, and accosting people about their consumeristic tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you need that? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, mall security would be on you. Anyway, go ahead. Just just yeah. a funny aside. It's really really hysterical to think that he he did that back in the day. Yeah. It it, it is, and you know, and people usually didn't appreciate it. And Euthyphro is one of the people that did not appreciate what Socrates was doing. And it eventually got to the point where Socrates was accused by the courts of corrupting the youth of Athens because he would get kind of like these followers, um, people that would follow him and, and participate in the same activity. And Plato was one of them um, when he was a young man. And that's how he met Socrates. And, uh, and then Plato's the one that wrote down all the things that happened or invented them. But anyway, <laughs> that's for up for debate. But uh, but long story short, you know, Socrates was quite famous for investigating and interrogating everything, you know, using the tools of dialogue and philosophy. And um, ultimately, he was charged with corrupting the youth and then put to death. So they actually sent, sentenced him to death. And he had the option of either death or exile, and he chose death, and he also chose to be the one to administer his own death. So he ended up taking suicide, by, committing suicide by hemlock, um, and he actually went out in quite a happy way. He wanted to be surrounded by all of his friends, and that's another great dialogue. That's actually my favorite one that could be up for discussion, the trial and death of Socrates. It's about two to three small dialogues actually so anyway um so carrying along here so um so socrates is at the market he comes across this pretty arrogant religious person euthyphro um and euthyphro is about to bring a case against his father for killing one of his slaves and he claims that the reason he is he is bringing this case against his father is because he displeased the gods. And Euthyphro is a very pious and religious man, and he would never do such a thing. And his father angered the gods by doing this. And Socrates ends up 
interrogating Euthyphro about the nature of piety, you know, which you can also talk about as virtue um, and its connection to religion. So it's a very interesting dialogue. And a couple of side notes here. So um, in Greece, um, you know, at this time, not today, fortunately, <laughs> um, you know, slaves were considered, um, you know, basically property and um, committing some kind of accusation against one's parent or an inquisition of any kind was considered a grave sin. So, you know, or they didn't have the language of sin back then. So a grave transgression, right? So uh, Euthyphro is actually uh, kind of, you know, exiled from his, from his family, his friends. He's held in ill repute simply because he is pressing a case against his father for damaging his property, right? So he's a bit of a pariah, right, in a way. Yep. And interestingly, like Socrates is as well. So these are kind of yes. like two pariahs going at it um, here. Exactly. And actually, at the beginning of the dialogue, Socrates <laughs> first kind of befriends Euthyphro over the fact that they're both pariahs, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> So, which is an interesting part. So anyway, so I'm going to read this intro first, then we'll start the dialogue. The scene is the Agora, or Central Marketplace of Athens, before the offices of the magistrate who registers and makes preliminary inquiries into charges brought under the laws protecting the city from the gods' displeasure. There, Socrates meets Euthyphro. Socrates is on his way to answer the charges of impiety brought against him by three younger fellow citizens, on which he is going to be condemned to death, as we learn in the Apology. Euthyphro has just deposed murder charges against his own father for the death of a servant. Murder was a religious offense since it entailed pollution, which, if not ritually purified, was displeasing to the gods. But equally, a son's taking such action against his father might well itself be regarded as impious. So impi impiety or piety, you can also talk about as virtue, right? Like just good, bad, etc. Euthyphro professes to be acting on esoteric knowledge about the gods and their wishes, and so about the general topic of piety. Socrates seizes the opportunity to acquire from Euthyphro this knowledge of piety so that he can rebut the accusations against himself. However, like all his other interlocutors in Plato's Socratic dialogues, Euthyphro cannot answer Socrates' questions to Socrates' satisfaction or ultimately to his own. So he cannot make it clear what piety is, though he continues to think he does know it. Thus, predictably, Socrates' hopes are disappointed just when he is ready to press further to help Euthyphro express his knowledge. If indeed he does possess it, Euthyphro begs off on the excuse of business elsewhere. Though, which is probably what would happen with anyone if you interrogated them at the market. <laughs> uh, though Socrates does not succeed in his quest, we readers learn a good deal about the sort of thing Socrates is looking for and asking his question, what is piety? And the other, what is, questions he pursues in other dialogues. He wants a single model or standard he can look to in order to determine which acts and persons are pious, ones that give clear, unconflicting, and unambiguous answers. 
he wants something that can provide such a standard all on its own. As one of Euthyphro's proposals, that being pious is simply being loved by the gods cannot do, since one needs to know first what the gods do love. Pious acts and people may indeed be loved by the gods, but that is a secondary quality, not the essence of piety. It is not that which serves as the standard being sought. There seems no reason to doubt the character Socrates' sincerity in probing Euthyphro's statements so as to work out an adequate answer. He has, in advance, no answer of his own to test out or to advocate. But does the dialogue itself suggest to the attentive reader an answer of its own? Euthyphro frustrates Socrates by his inability to, to develop adequately his final suggestion that piety is justice in relation to the gods in serving and assisting them in some purpose or enterprise of their own. Socrates seems to find that an enticing idea. Does Plato mean to suggest that piety may be shown simply in doing one's best to become as morally good as possible? Something Socrates claims in the Apology, the gods want more than anything else? If so, can piety remain an independent virtue at all with its own separate standard for action? These are among the questions this dialogue leaves us to ponder. So, and another thing to pay attention to in this dialogue, uh, which the intro mentioned, is the way Socrates interrogates Euthyphro and in general interrogates ideas, right? And when we talk about investigation in the Dhamma, we generally talk about, you know, trying to see things clearly. But there's multiple different types of investigation, right? You know, one can investigate, as Rick and I talked about earlier, you know, through investigating just the, the nervous system, you know, or the system, <laughs> if one is not so nervous. Um, you know, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? What are you hearing, et cetera? And another form of investigation, which is what Socrates is all about in this dialogue and many others, is that of logic, dialogue, analytics, you know, thinking things through, et cetera. And um, that is quite an interesting way uh, to investigate something, and it's also valuable. And that's, you know, really something to pay attention to in this dialogue. So, Mr. Rick, the first line, take it okay. away. Right, you, now, Euthyphro. So, Rick will be Euthyphro, and I will be Socrates in this dialogue. So, Euthyphro, take it away. All right. What's new, Socrates, to make you leave your usual haunts in Lyceum and spend your time here by the King Archion's court? Surely you're not prosecuting anyone before the King Archion as I am. The Athenians do not call this a prosecution, but an indictment, Euthyphro. What is this you say? Someone must have indicted you, for you are not going to tell me that you have indicted someone else. No, indeed. But someone else has indicted you? Quite so. Well, who is he? I do not really know him myself, Euthyphro. He is apparently young and unknown. They call him Miletus, I believe. He, he belongs to the Pythian Dem. If you know anyone from that Dem called Miletus, with long hair, not much of a beard, and a rather aquiline nose. <laughs> Quite a description. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know him, Socrates. What charge does he bring against you? 
what charge? A not ignoble one, I think. For it is no small thing for a young man to have knowledge of such an important subject. He says he knows how our young men are corrupted and who corrupts them. He is likely to be wise. And when he sees my ignorance corrupting his contemporaries, he proceeds to accuse me to the city as to their mother. I think he is only one of our public men to start out the right way. For it is right to care first that the young should be as good as possible, just as a good farmer is likely to take care of the young plants first and of the others later. So too, Miletus first gets rid of us who corrupt the young shoots, as he says, and then afterwards he will obviously take care of the older ones and become a source of great blessings for the city, as seems likely to happen to one who started out this way. By the way, just to point out here, it's very interesting how Socrates mocks the accusations <laughs> against him mm -hmm. and speaks like in a very respectful way of Miletus, but also a mocking way. And he also shows that he has a lot of detachment to his own, like these are various serious charges against him that can result in his death. And he has like this very mocking, detached attitude towards it, even though he knows he's probably going to be found guilty. Um, so you can see Socrates is clearly someone that has developed um, a lack of I, me, and mine. I don't know if I would call him attained or anything, but there's certainly some lack of attachment going on, which is, is definitely positive. So take it away. Mm, I could wish this were true, Socrates, but I fear the opposite may happen. He seems to me to start out by harming the very heart of the city by attempting to wrong you. Tell me, what does he say you do to corrupt the young? Strange things to hear him tell it, for he says that I am a maker of gods, and on the ground that I create new gods while not believing in the old gods, he has indicted me for their sake, as he puts it. Mm, I understand, Socrates. This is because you say that the divine sign keeps coming to you. So he has written this indictment against you as one who makes innovations in religious matters, and he comes to the court to slander you, knowing that such things are easily misrepresented to the crowd. The same is true in my case. Whenever I speak of divine matters in the assembly and foretell the future, they laugh me down as if I were crazy, and yet I have foretold nothing that did not happen. Nevertheless, they envy all of us who do this. One need not worry about them, but meet them head on. So just to give a little context about the divine sign. So Socrates, this is actually another sign of no, I mean mine, is, um, you know, people would ask Socrates, where did you get all these ideas? You know, where did <laughs> this questioning come from, etc.? And he would say, oh, it's not me. It's a spirit. <laughs> a spirit comes into my body and <laughs> gives me all these ideas. Um, and it's not clear as to how serious Socrates was about that, but it is interesting that he did not attribute his, his own intelligence to himself. And he actually referred to it, this is where the word genius comes from, um, is he referred it to, it to it as his diamond. So also demon is related to this. So he would say, my diamond gives me all of my ideas, right? And the diamond is related to the word 
jinn, you know, which is like a kind of like a demon in in say, you know, Arabic language, which is related to the word genie, you know, someone that grants wishes, and you see that analogy comes up to to genius, right? So as this all kind of originates with Socrates talking about the spirit, the spirit of genius, of genius that would give him his ideas. 